Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Here's the sermon. To cultivate a joy not dependent upon acquisition and events is deeply Christian. And this practice of cultivating a joy not dependent upon acquisition and events is also deeply subversive to the powers who want to control everything, including our joy. The powers want to dictate to us when and why we can rejoice and then sell it to us. Rebel and rejoice in the Lord. This is the scandalous joy given to us by Jesus. And my sermon this morning is called Scandalous Joy. Now, the Apostle Paul writes to the fledgling church there in Philippi and Macedonia in northern Greece. And he says to them, rejoice in the Lord always. Well, you know, that makes a nice refrigerator magnet. Rejoice in the Lord always. But I mean, really, is that, is that realistic? Is that absurd? Is that just saccharine Christian cliches? I mean, what's going on here? Is, is this, rejoice in the Lord always, is this the privilege of a very comfortable man? Well, let's consider, uh, you know, where was Paul when he writes this? Was he staying at the Ritz-Carlton? Uh, up there in his suite? Wearing one of those really fancy robes that they have in five-star restaurants and ordering room service? No, he was in prison. He was in prison, charged with a capital crime. His life is on the line. And you and I probably cannot imagine what a first-century Roman prison was like. Let's say it was even worse than Motel 6. I mean, it wasn't good. (laughs) And so Paul is there in prison... His life on the line, if he's found guilty, he's going to be executed in prison. And in his letter, this short little brief epistle to the, to the Filipinos, not the Philippians, uh, he speaks of joy 14 times. 14 times in this little four-chapter letter, he speaks of his joy that he has in the Lord and invites the Philippians to enter into that same experience of having the joy of the Lord. Scandalous joy. Everything about the early church in its context in the Roman Empire was scandalous. There were many things that made these early Christians look suspect in the eyes of the Romans and the emperors and the Roman Empire. One of the things that made the early Christians appear scandalous in the eyes of Rome was their irrepressible joy. We know this. 
from both the writings of the Christians and the writings of their pagan critics. That the Christians just seemed to carry about with them this irrepressible joy that appeared ridiculous to the Romans, maybe a bit unseemly. Christians in the first century, it's first, second, third centuries, the early church, Christians were mostly poor, often slaves, periodically persecuted, and absolutely without power. And yet their lives were characterized and their gatherings were characterized by an inexplicable joy. And it just caused the Romans to scratch their head and say, you know, they must be on drugs, although they probably didn't say that then, but that sort of thing. Well, Christianity is inherently joyful. And if your Christianity isn't inherently joyful, you may have got a defective version. We're going to try to upgrade you. Joy like a river flows through the entire gospel story told in the New Testament. I mean, the New Testament is giving us the gospel, and everybody knows gospel means good news. Good news. I mean, when we have good news, we have joy. Well, we rejoice. Good news. And so let's take a, a quick dash through the New Testament and just note the prominence of joy. Remember that time when uh, Mary, pregnant with Jesus, the Virgin Mary, with Jesus in her womb, goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. Remember what happened when Mary walks into the room where Elizabeth was, these two pregnant women? And what happens? John the Baptist, inside the womb of Elizabeth, leaps for joy. Woo! Jesus just walked into him. That's, that's early in the story. And then as the story goes on, remember when Jesus was born, the angel comes and says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Let's go King James. I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. So there's the shepherds, and shepherds are near the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder in first century Judea. They're poor, and they're occupied by a foreign power. They don't have much going for them. And an angel comes, and the first thing the angel says, oh, sorry to freak you out, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, I know I scared you. Don't be afraid, because I've got good news of great joy. It's going to be for everybody, but you get to hear it first. When Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee, announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God, it said, the common people heard him gladly. There was just something about what Jesus was saying that caused common people. Now, now the people in power were like, hey, whoa, whoa, hold on. You said something. What was that? Back up. You said something about the, the first will be last and last will be first? I don't. Can we get that? Can we get? We need, I have the lawyers to check that out. But the common people said, I like what this guy's saying. I dig this. Makes me glad. The common people heard him gladly. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives a whole string of parables on the kingdom of God. And he says, in one of them, he says, well, the kingdom of God 
is like this. It's like, it's like a guy that discovers a treasure, a buried treasure in a field. And he goes and he sells everything and buys the field so that he can have the treasure. Of course, the treasure is the kingdom of God. Our participation in God's new way of arranging the world. He discovers this buried treasure. But it doesn't say he went and sold everything. It says, for joy, he went and sold everything. It wasn't like, oh, gosh, I guess I'm going to have to give up everything now to get this treasure. I'm going to have to sell my, you know, my old beat-up lawnmower so I can get a million dollars. <laughs> no, he, he he's discovered a treasure, and he joyfully makes the changes in his life necessary to apprehend this treasure. He does it out of joy. Not out of being berated, not out of fear of going to hell, out of joy. He changes his life so he can participate in this treasure. When Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples the night before his suffering begins, he tells them, uh, I've told you all of these things. And this is what he's been talking about. I am the vine, you are the branches. I've told you these things that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Jesus has joy. Somebody say amen. amen. Jesus is not depressed. Jesus is not at the right hand of the Father going, I, I don't know. I just, I just don't know what we're going to do here, Dad. <laughs> I just don't know. No, Jesus has joy. Now, he's beginning, he's going to go into his suffering, but he's, he has joy. He knows he has joy. And he says, I'm telling you these things about you're the vine, I'm the branch. No, you're, I'm the, we'll get it right here. Uh, I'm the vine, you're the branch. And I've told you this so that my joy may be in you. I have joy, I'm going to give my joy to you. You abide in me and my joy will flow into you and your joy will be made, may be made full. And then later in that same teaching, Jesus says, um, Right now, you're going to have some pain because, you know, what's going to happen? Right now, you're going to have some pain, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus is talking about the passion, his death, burial, but then his resurrection. He says, you're going to go through some pain. That's unavoidable. You're going to have pain, but I will see you again and then you're going to have joy and it's going to be the kind of joy that no one can take from you. It will not be dependent upon acquisition and events. I'm going to give you joy based upon my resur resurrection that no one can take from you. You get, uh, well, the, and the writer of Hebrews tells us that, that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. The cross was not joyful, but Jesus was aware that on the other side of that, there was joy. And Jesus goes to the cross, which is not joyful, knowing that it's moving toward joy. So there is suffering in this life. There is suffering in the Christian life. That's unavoidable, but it's never the end. It's never the goal. It's never what we're ultimate. It's what we go through. It's not what we're going to. We're going through some suffering, some pain, some sorrow. That's real. I'm not diminishing that, but we're going to the joy that's set before us. You get into the book of Acts, and we're told that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And it's remarkable in the New Testament how often joy and the Holy Spirit are connected. The Apostle Paul writes, we are workers for your joy. I pray that all the time for me, that I would be a worker 
for your joy. In my preaching, in my teaching, in my pastoring, in what I do, ultimately, I want to be working for your joy. I'm really trying to do that. I'm working for your joy. James, the brother of our Lord, he says this. He says, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. That's a challenging one, isn't it? Woo-hoo, trial. Woo-hoo. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. So I guess we could maybe think about it like this, that even when we're going through hard times and struggles and trials, God's purposes are still at work. God, has not, God will not allow your suffering to be pointless. And he will cause all things to work together for good because you love God and are called according to his purpose. The early Christians, the writer of Hebrews tells us, joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods. That's crazy. There were times, I mean, sometimes there were were empire-wide persecutions of Christians, but these were usually directed at the bishops and pastors and leaders. But occasionally in very localized situations, uh, maybe, maybe there was an epidemic. And Christians often played the role of scapegoat. And they would get blamed. And mobs would form in a, in a city or a town. And they would say, it's those Christians. The gods are, are not receiving the sacrifices because of these Christians. And now the gods are mad and they've sent a plague among us. And they would, they would go on a rampage and they would loot and steal from Christian homes and businesses. And the writer of Hebrews is recalling a historical event. He says, remember that? And you guys endured it joyfully. Wow. Praise God. They stole my stuff. I guess I'm a real Christian. It's like the apostles when they were, when they were beaten with rods by the Sanhedrin returned back to the church rejoicing that they had been privileged to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. Paul says the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Or we could say it this way. The kingdom of God is justice, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. See, it's connected to the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Peter says we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always. That's the entire verse. You know, in our children's ministry, which we don't have right now, in our children's ministry, we'll, we'll give them memory verses. You know, they got to memorize the verse. So we're going to have, I'm going to be like the children's pastor today. And you're going to be my children. And we're going to have a memory verse. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. It's rejoice always. Got it? Okay, here's the quiz. What is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16? Oh, you got a great memory. That's right. You've memorized the verse today. It's a very short verse. Of course, the shortest verse is what? John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Well, you hold those things in tension. Sorrows and tears. I mean, Jesus is a man of sorrows in that Jesus experiences sorrow with us because we all have sorrow. Jesus wept, rejoice always. Jesus wept, rejoice always. Just hold them both. If you're weeping, I weep with those that weep, and Jesus will weep with you. But weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Jesus wept, rejoice always. 
So how do we explain this genuine Christian capacity to have a scandalous joy? How do we explain it? I mean, is it just an empty exhortation? Is it just whistling in the dark? No. Let me give a fancy theological term. We have eschatological joy. We have eschatological. Eschatological or eschatological. I'm not sure where the accent goes. I've heard it both ways. Well, let me explain it in simple terms. We have joy because we know the end of the story. Eschatological means that to deal with the end. We have joy even in present sorrows and struggles and pains and tears because we know the end of the story. As the old saying goes, we've read the end of the book. We've cheated. We would, oh, it's got a happy ending. Yes. Yeah, I don't know if I like books that have unhappy endings, especially if they're long. It's like, what? I invested all that. There should have been a disclaimer at the front of it. Well, we're involved in a very long story. It begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where it begins. And it's a long story. I'm going to, spoiler alert, it has a happy ending. It has a happy ending. It has a happy ending. And that makes a difference, folks. I can, I can go through some stuff that I don't want to go through if I know it's not going to stay that way and the end is going to be happy. How do I know it has a happy ending? Because Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's how I know. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Not me. Not our programs. Not even the church. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus, the Son of God, the Word of God, the Logos of God. Isaiah 55, 11, the prophet speaking in the name of the Lord says... The word that goes forth from me shall not return to me void without accomplishing that for which I sent it. And God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So the world's going to be saved. Because Jesus doesn't fail. Jesus doesn't come back to the Bible. I tried. You can't believe how messed up they are. No, the word that proceeds from the Father does not return void without accomplishing that for which it was sent. And God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. If God only wanted to condemn the world, he could send Moses or anybody else. His goal is to save the world, so he sent Jesus, the one who is his word, and his word will not return void. Jesus does not fail. He is God. He does not fail in what he does eschatological joy y'all so it may often look like the world is doomed but we know ultimately better because Jesus is the savior of the world and we can borrow that joy from the future Jesus is the savior of the world and guess what he's your savior too he's your savior too he's saving the world and he will save the world. The world will be saved. He's saving the world. And that should bring you some joy. But I'll tell you that he's also saving you. You, as you, 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 all spread out six feet apart. You. He's, he's saving you. No matter how marred and messed up, no matter how stressed and depressed, everything's going to be all right because Jesus is your Savior. 
You can say, I'm a mess, and I'm stressed, and I'm feeling it, and it's hard, but I'm going to be all right because Jesus is my Savior. He's going, to, he's going to save me. He's going to save me. I know your sorrow and tears are real. I'm not trying to diminish that. I know they're real. I get it. The pain, the anxiety, the stress, the tears, it's real. I know. But you know what else is real? The promise of Jesus is real. And Jesus says, remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says, remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So right now we're in an age that is passing away, a fading age, a passing away age. And it's, what's passing away is the old age of sorrow and tears and pain and death. But it's still, it's passing away, but it's still here. We're still in it. So we're still in an age where there is the presence of injustice and sorrow and pain and tears and death. But in the midst of this age, Jesus is always with us. He says, I'm always with you. Remember, I'm always with you. Even to the end of the age. So the good news is twofold. One, no matter what, Jesus is with us. And number two, this age that we're not so keen about is going to end. But it doesn't end with nothing. It ends with something new. We are headed for an age where there's no more sorrow, no more crying, no more tears, no more death. We're heading for an age where Jesus will wipe away every tear. We're headed for an age when Jesus will make all things new. Amen. So, the poor and persecuted early church was a witness to the reality of this scandalous joy. Are there any other great historic witnesses to the scandalous joy that we have in Jesus? Yes. And I'm thinking of the American black church. In the midst of their deep suffering, in the midst of systemic injustice, the black church in America has demonstrated a scandalous joy. Let me tell a story. The story involves Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Diedrich Bonhoeffer is one of the most important theologians of the 20th century. He would be famous to us if he'd lived a long life and died peacefully at the age of 80. He died at age 39, executed by the Nazis. But Diedrich Bonhoeffer is one of the most famous and influential, important, let's say important, he's one of the most important theologians of the 20th century. He's also one of the most important Christian lives of the 20th century. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was born in 1906 into a wealthy, uh, noted, affluent, influential, highly successful family. He was a Lutheran. His father was the best-known psychiatrist in all of Germany. They lived in Berlin. They were upper class. His father was uh, a brilliant well-known, famous psychiatrist. It was assumed that Diedrich would follow his father into psychiatry, but Diedrich Bonhoeffer did not. He became interested in theology. 
And so he began to study theology, and listen to this. At the age of 21, he received his Ph.D. in theology from the University of Berlin. Age 21. Age 21, he received his Ph.D. in theology from the University of Berlin. A few years later, 1930, he was 24, he wanted to continue his studies, and so he, he enrolled in Union Seminary in New York City. And he came to America to continue postdoctorate studies at Union Seminary. But while at Union Seminary, he began to, to uh, attend a church, the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, one of the most historic black churches in America. You understand? Understand now, <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer grew up in a very proper, staid, German Lutheran church. And he comes to New York, and for whatever reason, where, I mean, he's studying at Union Seminary, but on Sundays he goes to Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. And he says, he clearly writes in his memoirs, he said, I learned more at Abyssinian Baptist Church than I did at Union Seminary. Here's a quote from him. He says, I heard the gospel proclaimed in the black church. Here, one really could still hear someone talk in a Christian sense about sin and grace and the love of God and ultimate hope. Here, one can experience a strange mixture of reserved melancholy and eruptive joy. And it changed him. He saw people experiencing injustice and the suffering that comes from it, learn how to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of it. Yes. And it influenced him. 1933, Hitler came to power, backed by nearly 90% of the evangelical church in Germany. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer... In fact, his friends urged him, say, you better just stay here in America because it looks like the deal's going to go down bad there. He said, no, I have to go home. I have to help. And he went back, and he formed his underground seminary, and he took the lessons he learned at Abyssinian Baptist Church about really hearing the gospel and, and really understanding how to have joy despite it all, but the joy of the Lord is our strength, you know. And he continued his gospel work until finally the seminary was shut down and then his radio program was shut down and eventually he was arrested. And then finally he was in prison for a few years and then on April 9th, 1945, he was martyred. The Nazis hung him. They saw that the war was over, the war was lost, but they weren't going to let Bonhoeffer survive it. And so they hung him. These are his final words. This is the end. For me, it is the beginning of life. To cultivate joy that is not dependent upon acquisition or events is deeply Christian. It also subverts the powers who want to control everything, including our joy. The powers want to tell us why and when we can rejoice and then sell it to us. 
Rebel and rejoice in the Lord. This is the scandalous joy given to us by Jesus. Amen.